do you ever do any, edi any editing afterwards? Like if I like start coughing or I say like, hey, I need like a minute to reflect. I mostly try not to because I don't want to ever like feel like I'm changing anybody's thought. But like if you start coughing or if uh, the phone rings or I don't know, a monkey jumps in the room, we could definitely edit that out. No problem at all. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Podcast. How are you today? I'll be your host. And if I haven't said it in a while, I need to. If you've just joined the podcast, welcome. I'm glad you're here. You're about to go on a big ride. Ask your friends. If you've listened for years, then, God, you're amazing. Because even I lose interest after a while. And I have to do these. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of what I do. No, I'm glad you're here. I shouldn't make fun of it. It's great. Today's podcast is... Um, you're going to like this podcast. This is an interesting podcast for a bunch of reasons. Now, I'm not in my normal place doing my normal stuff, so I'll put this together really quickly. We're going to talk to a guy named Campbell McDonald, who's from a company called Proxy in Vancouver, Canada. That's Canada, not Canada, Texas. Canada, Canada. And Campbell is uh, – you're going to like this conversation because we're not going to talk much about – marketing stuff, we're going to talk a lot about data and prediction and linearity and truth and all the things that I think are really interesting to talk about. And that makes this podcast completely worthwhile. Proxy makes a, um, a detector, a wearable detector that you can determine if you're close to um, high voltage. And it, so it's a cool idea. I think of it kind of like a rumble strip. And this is what I was telling Campbell is I don't think it's a, a prevention tool. I think it's a it's a it's a control, and if it buzzes, that means you're close to the action, and you need to be careful. Get back, step back, baby, step back, Jack. Get back. That is kind of where this podcast goes. You'll see as we progress through. <clears throat> I think Campbell. Um, I think I fried his his mind a little, and he fried mine. It was a mind-frying podcast. So um, it, let me get into it, and then we can talk afterwards because I think there's some stuff we should talk about afterwards. But for now, um, thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're having a great summer. I, I don't even have any reports. So busy. Um, the class was amazing. Uh, we had such a good time in Denver. Thank you for coming. It was really, really fun. But now let's jump into the podcast. This, my friends, is Campbell McDonald. And my view now is that like all history is revisionist. Like unless yes. you were there, unless you were there, it's all revisionist. So yes, it's, it's like uh, uh, it's like the notion of facts. Yeah. Facts exist uh, based upon context, right? I mean, you yeah, know, facts I, are negotiable. I, yeah, I mean, when I was in school, I studied like history of thought and history of science, and I actually do think that there are some facts that are out there or wow. uh, certain realities. Yeah, like things like some math facts. Like I think the idea of prime numbers are something that we can agree on um you know there's certain things that are like realities that are i think are you know touchstones or basis for having logical discussions that are that are somewhat immutable but things you know that involve observation uh you know subjective evaluations and that includes like a lot of stuff like science like biology um is definitely like the term facts is is a, is a tricky it's a tricky term interesting so you see you see truth in math very interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm a math nerd. Yes, uh, you, yeah. you, clearly, uh, if you're not an engineer, you should be. 
you're missing a chance there. Well, I've done a lot of math. Uh, I did economics in school, and economics is clearly not facts, but you do a lot of math and you learn math there. And that's actually that's actually changed my view of uh, of safety um, and just safety analysis. Like that's actually when I got into looking at safety and how you know how they use data, for example. I was initially thinking, oh, okay, there's going to be this accepted view on safety and this accepted view on data. And I've been kind of, I don't want to say depressed, but a little bit shocked at the, the types of data that are kind of seen as, as touchstones or bedrock for safety discussions, when in fact they're, um, they're really terrible data sets, either uh, very, very small samples of infrequent events, highly subjective analysis, um, uh, or outright biased data. And that's true of many analyses, but the fact that there isn't uh, some acknowledgement up, up front is, is pretty surprising to me. Why do you think that exists in the safety? What's your, what's your, what's your gut tell you? Uh, so I actually have thought about this a bit. I actually did a, did a talk last week on this. Uh, I was at a, at a safety conference in, in Montreal. And uh, my thesis is that um, predictive sort of predictive anal uh, analysis has got kind of a dirty, like this is a bigger topic, but a predictive analysis has a dirty uh, or a bit of a bad reputation in safety circles because of Heinrich's triangle. You know, he came up and said, hey, we've got this relationship between minor injuries and major injuries, and it's this fixed ratio. And that's that's been thoroughly debunked. And so for a lot of people, like what that's said is like, well, we can't really trust these leading indicators or data, so let's use process policies, checklists, and what have you to stay safe. And that's, I don't want to like say that that's bad because that would be throwing, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. There have been real safety gains, particularly with minor injuries um, because of these processes and checklists. Um, I can say with a fair, fairly high degree of certainty and based on my own experience managing safety teams that uh, best practices process and checklists to ensure that, uh, you know, tasks have been completed, uh, in general, have been a good thing. The trouble with that is that it, they've been elevated to a status of not really being questioned, and there's also a limit to their effectiveness. So that's a huge kind of thesis, but let me just unpack it quickly. So on the one hand, you have, you've seen real gains from these checklists and processes. The trouble is that there's, um, it's gotten to the point where every time that there's an accident or an injury, there has to be a new process. And I think that there's a, a cognitive limit or a maximum cognitive load that people can handle in terms of processes. And so if you combine that with the fact that there's human error, you have to start prioritizing which processes matter to which workers. So that's one side. The other side is that checklists themselves, while they're effective and good because again, there's a maximum cognitive load that people can handle. A checklist provides a cue for you to look at things, but it's also not a perfect data set. I've managed many teams where they've pencil whip checklists. And so you've got a complete checklist, you've done that, that safety check, but the data is terrible because they haven't even inspected it. They've just gone down and pencil whipped the, uh, the checklist. So you've got this data set that's complete, but yet completely biased. And so when you start looking at this in general, you see that oh okay we've got this holy this this holy body of process and checklist that's seen as immutable but has real limits 
and and yet you have this data set that's inherently biased and subjective and somewhat a small sample that is and and you're kind of now painted yourself in this corner of like where do you go next you're you've almost uh you're almost at a uh in in statistics what you'd call like a local maxima you you can't really move off of it because you've got these beliefs and yet you're you've got nowhere to turn to get to a a better outcome with like fewer incidences or or better outcomes however you define that so what do we do with that i mean i, I that's a really interesting uh g- group of ideas you just presented what's it mean sorry what do what do we do with it now yeah what's that mean what's that mean for taking all the things you just said which were quite remarkable and uh, uh what does that what does that mean for sort of a person managing safety forward from this point on? Uh, so first of all, I don't know. Um, I've, got some, I've, got some, I've got some ideas. That's a great answer, know. by the way. That's a, that's a perfect answer. So that's good. Tell yeah, me your I, ideas. I, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm super biased. So I'm, I'm in the electrical safety space and I build, I, you know, I build and sell electrical sensors. Um, so you know, I'm mostly focused on working with organizations, industrial organizations that are focused on reducing the number of serious incidences, specifically electrical incidences. And so if you take a step back, like kind of going back to Heinrich's triangle, you know, the the reason why it got torn apart is they realized that if you're like trying to avoid cuts and sprained ankles, you can do that, but that's unlikely to have much of any effect on uh, fatalities and catastrophes. And so that's, that's, that's a good realization. The other realization they found is that, that most serious injuries and fatalities tend to fall into a, a relatively narrow scope of, uh, of incidences. And they, you know, there's, there's things like being confined in a space, being pinned, um, uh, gas exfoliation, uh, falls, um, but I think three or four of the kind of the big 10 are uh, related to electrical. So like hot permit works, um, uh, high voltage, and, and there's one other related to, uh, to electrical contact. So I'm, very, I'm obviously very focused in that space. And so when I look at this, I say like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm biased here because this is a space that I work in. But I, you know, I'm saying, is there not a better data set uh, to help organizations identify high-risk workers, high-risk teams, and high-risk locations. And can we not move away from this uh, occasional workplace inspection framework to something where we're constantly uh, looking at what everyone's doing all the time and getting a really robust uh, data set, maybe even moving away from a sample to a, to a population and not just looking at occasional inspection, but real-time notification of activities and and rolling that data up so that we can do robust analyses over time, like days, months, years, and really dig into the data. So that's my bias. And again, like I'm a data nerd, so like I'm, I'm always looking for more data. Um, so that's one side. The other side is also just saying, um, uh, you know, what, what are the like maybe even just doing like a like an audit from the point of view of what have we get what are the all the processes that we have for workers and which ones which ones do we think actually really matter like are we are we downloading requirements onto workers that um that aren't really relevant to that role and and that's always a hard thing to do because you're you're always thinking in the back of your mind as a manager what if 
what if I take something away that could have saved one life? Um, and that's a hard thing to do. But I think the other side is, if you if you think that in you know if, if any one person can only hold five, six, seven things in their mind at once, and you've got a hundred process, processes, like unless you've got some serious muscle memory to drill this into people, you're you're kind of deluding yourself if you think that all these processes are being uh, you know held in memory at one time. And so I don't know how you get away from that, but I think there's there's a side of saying we can do more with automation because we're we're offloading that cognitive load from the from the uh, from the worker, and we can start pruning some away some unnecessary processes to free up my mental space so that they can actually be alert and aware and focused on their job and their environment and react to uh, emerging situations. That's amazing. And introduce yourself, Gamble. I think it's a good time to to sort of tell people who you are. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, my name is Campbell McDonald. Uh, I'm the CEO of Proxy, and we build uh, uh, an electrical uh, wristband and solution for industrial workers to keep them safe around electricity. So we came into this space because uh, we had hydroelectric utilities who were looking for a, a wearable sensor. Specifically, BC Hydro had identified um, a need for a wearable sensor. And when we started looking at this, we thought, okay, well, surely this must exist already. Um, and there, and obviously there are induction sensors out there, but there's nothing that's uh, worn by workers all day, every day at the moment. There's um, there's tick tracers that you can buy at you know at Home Depot to to sense to see if a if a panel is live. And there are some industrial solutions, but they're they're kind of bulky. But the thing that's really crazy is that none of them are connected. None of them are gathering data on worker behavior to say like, hey, you know, Campbell's had a, a worn, or Campbell's had a near miss, or Campbell's actually wearing the device from a compliance point of view. So um, it's really surprising because in, in, in my past lives, I've always been building software solutions and uh, it's, it's kind of a given that anything you do is gonna generate data that's gonna go to a dashboard for someone to, to dig in deeper. You're never gonna have someone doing something it can be instrumented and not have that measured in some way, whether it's anonymized or personalized or rolled up to a team. Just it seems like it seems crazy in this day and age when you have the ability to do digital analysis that you wouldn't at least consider the possibility that there may be some value out there. But isn't the fear that the 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 data you're collecting could be weaponized and used against the worker? I mean, that's the million dollar question. So let's just ask. Yeah. Really. Yeah. No. No. I mean, so like I have a. You know, I've got many strong opinions, and I've got super strong opinions on this. So let's let's take it. Let's go a step further, and then we'll come back to safety. So I believe that you know some of the richest data out there is biometric data. I think there's a huge uh, data store out there in terms of looking at worker movement, heart rate, fatigue measurement, hydration, um, and 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 data points that I can't even envision. Uh, I and I meet in my world. I meet all kinds of uh, incredible wearable companies. That are that are gathering data that's incredibly personal. The resistance to that in the workplace, both from liability to to um, to employers and from employee reaction to, as you say, you know, super invasive data, is real. So there have to be some limits around that. Now, the data set that we're gathering, which is looking at worker movement around highly energized devices and whether or not they're wearing a safety uh, uh, a safety uh, wearable is way less personal. But you're right, we we could definitely set our product up to, to track workers all the time and every time. And we've specifically set up fences um, so that we're not sharing that data. We're only sharing interaction around highly energized devices. So while there is a 
there's definitely like a big brother component to that where you know your workers are saying well hey you know why are you why are you doing this and we're saying listen this is this is something that we think is going to be valuable to you and it's also because it's going to protect you and increase the likelihood that you're going to go home at the end of the day and we can also protect your coworkers with this because we're going to have data to help understand whether there are teams that we're putting at risk unnecessarily so there's definitely like a risk trade off but we also have to be engaged with organizations to say hey we're going to use this data responsibly we're not going to use this data as a productivity measure which is for most workers what they're afraid of there it's the it's the dunkin donut problem like hey are you going to track me when i go for a coffee break and i stay on for 20 minutes instead of 15 and that's that's just where you have to put limits around the data to say that you're not going to measure that you translated that into the united states model instead of saying tim hortons you said dunkin donuts I, I have both of them. I don't actually have the European example, but it probably involves something like a croissant or biscuit or something like that. But yeah, I have I have both stories. <laughs> you, you you can speak with well. So, but I think that I think the string on this one's worth pulling more because so I agree with you. I think there's a real bias towards prevention, and that to me, what what manages at least catastrophic failure is the absence or presence of controls. And I see your wearable or wearables like this as indicators as really prevention tools, but really what they are, are, are control tools. I'm close to the risk. It's alerting me that I'm close to the risk. And I learned something I didn't know. It can make a surprise condition less surprising. The yeah. idea that the employer, I see this all the time with in-vehicle monitoring. You know, we, yeah. we monitor this information, but we won't use it against the worker until they screw up. And then we absolutely use in-vehicle monitoring against the worker. Um, that that sort of draws me to this question. Why track near misses? I mean, what do we learn from that? Other than that the worker was alerted they were close to the hazard and successfully moved away. So, so the, you're asking actually two questions there. So one is we have the ability as a, as a product company to limit the information we're sharing with companies. Now we can have companies say, well, hey, we want this information. Or uh, in, in the case of a criminal matter, police could come in and say, hey, we want this data. And then we as a company have to determine you know, if we're going to share that. But right now, you know, we're saying to companies and to workers, we're not tracking individuals around around. You know, except for incidences where you're um, interacting with highly energized devices. So if you're uh, in a coffee shop or in an office space, we're not getting any data. We just know you're wearing the device, and that's all we're tracking. And so it's a very simple, like, is it is it being used or not? So that's one piece. And we, as a product company, have just made that decision because we don't we think that this these questions are or the the risk to the risk to safety by opening up data to punish workers is just uh, is too great. Like we want to be viewed strictly as a safety company, not as a productivity company. The second thing you asked, which is, um, you know, how do we like why do near misses matter? Um, so we're taking this from the point of view of two things. One is we're going to warn workers just so there's aware an awareness piece. And why do we track it? We track it because. Right now, workers are governed by limits of approach. Um, the electrical safety standard is covered by NFPA 70E, which has this uh, table which says, you know, at a certain at a certain voltage level, depending on your qualification, you have to stay, you know, two feet, three feet, ten feet away from this device. And we're simply emulating that, and we're using that as a data point to say, like, hey, are your workers getting inside here? Is this something that we need to understand uh, at a more robust level? So the thing I would say is, you know, we actually track two stages. We track a warning, 
which is actually outside the limits of approach, and a near miss, which is inside the limits of approach. And I think the question is, why do you track warnings? And the reason we track warnings is simply to have it as a touchstone to see for us to see and for or for our customers to see, is there a relationship between warnings and near misses? My hypothesis is no, like a, a warning is, is not a breach in any way. It's just simply to show that the device is operating and that workers are aware of it. And we have a data point that we can look at for future analysis. A near miss at this point is um, really a trigger for an investigation. And so we think that that's a valuable touchstone at the moment. Whether that evolves over time, we'll see. But right now, it's a it's a it's a way to identify when workers are getting inside there, and for organizations to really have a much more robust data set. So I don't know if you realize this, but right now, if you have a breach of a limit of approach, that's considered a near miss and should trigger an investigation. Now, at the same time. Uh, most of our customers believe that 90 to 98% of near misses go unreported, either unintentionally because the worker or team hasn't even realized that they've had a near miss, or it's intentional. There is the worker, because of fear of workplace repercussion, uh, professional pride, um, just doesn't report it because they, they don't want to be viewed as an incompetent or high-risk worker. Well, I mean, there's so much there. So first of all, all reporting is voluntary, even mandatory reporting is voluntary, right? So that, that goes to the culture and trust that's built in the organization. So I got you there. I guess the question I would ask, because it's really curious to me, is is a near miss a near miss or with this wearable, is a near miss actually an event where the wearable functioned? So it's not a near miss, it's an event where the control worked. And because the control worked, we didn't have a negative outcome. I see that kind of in my mind, and I could be wrong on this, Campbell, but in my mind, that's different than a near miss. That's that's an event where the wearable made its money. So we're using the language of the of the safety space. So that's a great point. And we wrestle with this. You know, is a warning a warning? Is it an alert? Is a near miss a warning? Or is it know, a success? A... I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the word I would use um, aggressively with you is, is isn't, isn't that why you have the wearable on? I mean, that's a success. That's a, I mean, and that's a great point. And that's something that we, I have not heard that, but that's actually, I think I might steal that if you don't mind. Oh, because please. It's, uh, because well, it's, it's, and the reason I push you on it is because, because the idea of a near miss, I think really swings me back in kind of a normative way to behavior. You know, had he been more careful, he would not have had this near miss. I would actually suggest the reason the wearable's there is as a control. When I get close to a, hazard in this case an electrical hazard it tells me i'm close and i move my hand back that's not a near miss that's that's absolutely what you that's why we bought the equipment i mean that that's a that's a success so and i would suggest that that's a party it's not an opportunity for an investigation although i i i know why you use the word investigation it's really an opportunity to learn and i yeah. think, i think that learning opportunity is really valuable to me uh, if this becomes a way to sort of hold workers accountable, it's it's not very interesting. But if it becomes a way for workers to know when they are near a surprise condition, it's brilliant. So you've 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 touched on a ton of things there, and and most of which I agree with. So first of all, the investors. Just quickly before I forget all the points, investigation is absolutely an opportunity to learn. It's so it's it's a negative term, but it's definitely a learning experience. There shouldn't be blame, and so I agree with you completely. Um, and in terms of the the worker, in terms of 
in terms of thinking about it being protection, yes, we are trying to move away from PPE to administrative control and, and awareness or engineered outcomes to really keep workers safe. We want to keep them away from the hazard. So yes, we are definitely playing in that side. But as for the, uh, the, I guess the thing that we're not, I guess we're just not, we don't have enough data and enough experience with our product to, to really say that this is, yes, we're trying to keep workers safe, but we are not part of the, the critical path of keeping workers safe. Like we're not suggesting that this should be a diagnostic tool or be uh, eliminating any of the existing uh, safety steps right now in terms of things like lockout, tagout, uh, or contact sensors to verify de-energization. So that's just where I want to draw that distinction. So, because... so and I appreciate that, and I, and I definitely see where you're going with that. One of the things I would say is that what it really is is another layer. Yes. So it, it makes a lockout tagout better. It makes procedural adherence better. It, yeah. it's, 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 it's an additional layer of control. And I would invite you to just play around with the idea of kind of letting go of the hierarchy of controls. And, oh, yeah. and C controls is either hard controls or soft controls. And, and then you want to ask the question, is a wearable that buzzes when I get close to or alerts me when I get close to high voltage, is that a hard control or a soft control? The, the notion of hierarchy of control is really, really seductive because it's linear and it sort of gives the world order, kind of like what we started with math, right? It's, it's, it makes everything very seductively predictive. The problem with the hierarchy of control is that there are times where, where PPE is in fact the best control. It, it, it's just the best control. And so that kind of blows that hierarchy notion out of the water. Um, and what I think is exciting about what you're doing, and it is kind of exciting, is two things. One is you're really smart people who are thinking about this problem way differently than the rest of the industry does. Most of the rest of the industry just says, be careful. And you're not saying that. And secondly, you're really, really interested in how we can take this and use this information um, that we can gather to actually become smarter, better, faster, and safer. That's pretty cool, dude. Totally. And, and I mean, like, so first of all, thank you. That's, that's great validation. But yeah, we are totally, we, we want this to be another like layer. We talk about the safety onion and this is just another, another layer on it. Um, we are, you know, we are definitely thinking differently than the approaches to date, but we're not alone. There, this definitely resonates with our customers. They're seeing this and saying, this is fantastic. You know, thank you for this. Um, not everyone agrees. So it's definitely controversial, but I think the thing that's most exciting. And then again, this is going back to the data side. And I don't, when I talk about math, I'm not talking about statistics being truth. I'm talking about, you know, math theory, but the, I think the thing that's exciting about, uh, really rich unexplored data sets is the stuff that you're going to learn over time that you didn't even think about, you know, when you started. So this is, you know, right now it's day one for us. Um, but the, the, the feedback that we're getting already in terms of how this can be used from an organization learning, uh, to, to just ask, and this is the way we frame it with customers is that we don't have the answers for safety. This proxy doesn't provide this, a, it's not a solution to solve everything, but it is a it is a basis to ask way better questions than you're asking right now of your safety organization. So how do people get a hold of you? Because I know people are going to want to talk more to you. How do they get a hold of you? Uh, just through our website is the is the easiest way. Uh, proxy p r o x x i dot c o, and uh, there's a contact form, or you can email me directly, Campbell at proxyco 
So C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L at P-R-O-X-X-I dot C-O. So anytime. Capiensis, what'd you think, huh? I- interesting. Uh, the whole idea of of prevention bias versus control, control bias versus prevention, that becomes really kind of a foundational part of the discussion around this kind of safeguard. And this technology, you know, for bad or for good, and we should talk about this, whether it's bad or, for, or good, this kind of the Internet of Things and, and the fact that everything's kind of open to uh, data collection. You know, if you use Google, if you're on your cell phone, you're already sort of a, a big data collection tool anyway. Um, it's how we use this data that becomes a really interesting discussion. And it's kind of almost an ethical moral discussion should, should we use should we weaponize data against workers no but what if we have a bad worker and then we have this data we can use in a weaponized it's, it's there's not a clear answer here and you can oversimplify i mean i'm always you know quick to do that but ultimately this is a dilemma that will become more and more a part of our discussion as more and more things keep track of us it's really not much different than video cameras I, it's the whole thing's really interesting, but if you see it as an opportunity to make detection and then correction more effective, the safeguard notion of this uh, this valuable tool becomes pretty valuable, and that's kind of where I am in this discussion. I hope you like this one. I did. Um, keep listening, man. It's so much fun to have you hang out with me. I enjoy it immensely. I mean it. The summer is going to fly by, so do something fun. Learn something new every single day. Will you have as much fun as you possibly can? And for goodness sakes, be safe. <laughs>